invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And today we're finishing our series on the Ten Commandments. Um, also our church covenant. Um, our church covenant is what we as church members agree to, to do and to live like. And it's based on the Ten Commandments. And that's why we've been studying the Ten Commandments to see and to really consider what does God require of us. And that's why the, the title of the series is just How Shall We Live? How shall we live? How shall we live our lives now that we are redeemed from slavery? Remember, that's verse 1 and 2 of Exodus 20. God first redeems us from slavery, and then He commands us how to live. And, but yet, we should still do what He says as well. And um, so today, we're finishing the last six commandments together. So let's read together God's Word, Exodus 20 from verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It's a reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you for your mercy and your grace. Help us, Lord, to understand these passages. I pray that you will reveal to us our sin, reveal to us the depth of our sin, the depth of our problem. Use your law, Lord, to show us how filthy we are. But then lead us to Christ. Show us the Savior. Show us that there's a way to be cleansed, to be forgiven of our sins. And then, Lord, help us to commit, to repent and to believe and to follow the Lord Jesus. Lord, please be merciful to me as the, the preacher. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I might preach with boldness as I ought to. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so like I've said, we're going to look at six commandments in one sermon, and that's tough. There's a Reformed Baptist in me that wants to break it up into a series of 20 sermons, you know, and I want to spend one sermon per commandment, and I think we could have done that if, we, if I really wanted to. But for the sake of next week that we are signing next week to consider what the church covenant is, I've limited myself for five minutes per command. So we're going to do five minutes, more or less. <laughs> never know what, what turns out, but five minutes more or less for each commandment. Remember that, that the Ten Commandments are really structured on the Great Commandment, right? The first four commandments is about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And now the last six all deal with the second table. They call it the second table of the Ten Commandments, which is loving your neighbor as yourself. So how does love for neighbor look like? Well, you don't kill them. You don't steal from them. Right? You, don't, you don't covet their things. You don't, um, you don't commit adultery. Right? So you don't lie. So that's what love looks like. And in each of these commandments, there is a put-off element, meaning something you should stop doing. And there's also a, a put-on element, meaning the opposite of that. You should do the good that is the, op the, the, counter, the counter side of the negative. So we're going to look at the negatives and the positives as well. So let's dive into them. Let's look at verse 12, the, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
So just like the first commandment is the head of the love, love your love God, so the fifth commandment is the head of all the other commandments. Or you could say the fifth commandment is the foundation of all the other commandments. Because to honor your father and your mother is really the beginning place of loving your neighbor. Because the family unit is the most basic social block of the most basic building block of society. If you destroy the family, you destroy children, you destroy your society, you destroy your church, and you will destroy the world. And at the heart of the family is the marriage relationship. The marriage. Look at our society. Once a marriage starts crumbling, so goes the family. And therefore, we as Christians, we as the church, have a special obligation to, be, to protect our marriages, to be zealous, to, to love our wives, and to respect our husbands. Therefore, we also resist the, the, the cultural flood that destroys gender identity, that destroys marriage rules, and that destroys what the Bible teaches us on marriage. Because remember, we didn't create ourselves. God made us, and He designed us. He made us and he designed us as well as men and women. And there is, a, there is a difference between us. But this command doesn't focus on the marriage. It focuses on the children, right? It says, children, you must honor your father and your mother. That word honor comes from the Hebrew word, which means weight or glory. So, so it's, it's, the, it's the concept of treat your parents with weight. Treat your parents with glory, with respect, don't treat them like something irrelevant, something light that you can just ignore. So honoring also includes obedience. It includes submission to your parents. Because your life comes from your parents. You owe them in that sense, right? Without your parents, you would not be here. Notice the commandment doesn't say honor your father and your mother if they are honorable. It just says, honor your father and your mother, period. Because that's the position God gave them. They are your parents. Of course, when there's abuse, um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, children must be protected. They must be um, taken away from their parents. But in all other cases, while you're living in the home, it means you must obey their rules. And you do it in the following way. With joy without hesitation, and with respect. You see, sometimes your, your children can obey parents, but still not honor them if they grumble and complain. Please wash the car. <clears throat> like That's not honoring your father and mother, but to do it with joy and without hesitation as well is to honor them. And this is so important because, as Paul says later in Ephesians 6, that this is the first commandment with what? With the promise, meaning... God is actually saying, listen, life is going to be great for you <laughs> if you do this. He's not, and this is one of those commands where God is not threatening you. He's saying, do you want to have a great life? Honor your father and mother, for then you, your days may be long in the land. That means that there's a, there's a blessing tied to this commandment. And the reason why this blessing is there, that if you submit to your parents and honor them, you are most probably going to honor all other authorities outside of the house as well. Like the family is the first place where you learn that there are authorities and that you need to submit. And then you go out of the house and you realize, oh, there's the police, there's church, there's other areas, there's teachers, there's professors, and you have to also respect them. And have you noticed people that do not do that? 
do not respect authority, do not submit under authority. Their lives are horrible, right? But those who do, those who submit, those who honor and respect legitimate authorities, their lives, generally speaking, are blessed, are, are happy, are well. Um, Tim Chester, in his book, um, The Everyday Gospel, it's a great little booklet. It, the subtitle is The Theology of Washing the Dishes. So you have to get that book. But he writes there, he says, The family is the training ground for a life lived under various spheres of authorities, teacher, police, employers. Even more importantly, the family is a mirror of the loving authority of our Heavenly Father. Your attitude towards your parents will also be reflected in your attitude towards God himself as well. There is a correlation there. So our church covenant reads, we agree to honor and obey within the bounds of scripture all our superiors, whether in family, church, state, or business, and if we be superiors, to deal reasonably and lovingly with our subordinates, and thus to teach them by word and example to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We promise to resist the spirit of our age, especially with regard to the ordinance of marriage, as wives respect respectfully submitting to our husbands, and as husbands tenderly loving our wives. We believe that God has ordained marriage as a heterosexual relationship between a natural man and a natural woman. We, unfortunately, we're living in a world where we have to define that last part clearly, what we mean by marriage. And it's so important to also emphasize that this is within the bounds of Scripture. So it, what that means is all authorities have a limit. Parent, parental authorities have a limit. Church authority has a limit. Government authority has a limit. Because if they, any of those authorities commands you to sin, to do something that God says you shouldn't do, or to forbid what God says you should do, you should say, like, like Peter, we must obey God rather than man. So all our authority is capped by the word of God. Word of God is our final authority. We don't obey if our authorities ask us to sin. And that's why this commandment is so important. It's really the, the head of loving your neighbor in all other areas as well. So let's read the sixth commandment. Verse 13, you shall not murder. So the Bible shows that there's actually a difference between killing and murdering. There are certain situations where you would not be sinning if you would take another human life. Let me give you at least a few examples. Someone breaking into your house, threatening the life of your wife, your children, um, or threatening your life, and you are self def you're defending yourself and you kill the person in the process, that is not breaking the sixth commandment. Or even in the Bible, the death penalty. Genesis 9 verse 6 talks about if someone has committed a murder, the government has authority to put that person to death. Right? Also, another example is just war, what theologians call a just war, meaning sometimes it's necessary to go to war to be able to defend peace. And in those cases, it is not breaking the sixth commandment to kill or to take another life. But what the sixth commandment does forbid is taking an innocent life, taking a life that doesn't deserve it. And as we study the Bible, this is where it gets a little, this is how it gets a bit more personal as well, because you can even, the Bible even condemns you are breaking the sixth commandment even if you are negligent. Meaning, if you kill someone by your negligence, you are still guilty of murdering. For example, in the Old Testament, they had flat roofs, so they had to build a fence around their roofs so that they won't fall off and die. And if someone did, they would have been guilty of murder. Or if someone's ox was known to be violent and the owner knew it, 
and then that ox kills someone, the owner had to die as well because he didn't restrain his ox as well. So do you see, so even with negligence, in our context, it would be things like making sure your, pool, your swimming pool is safe, um, following safety protocols for buildings and for things like that. Or what about texting and driving? Right? If you kill someone by texting and driving, you are a murderer. Even if you did not intend that. But you are negligent. You are not keeping your eyes on the road. So we should, as Christians say, we're not going to do that because we value life. So we, we, we refrain from even unintentional murders. But, of course, the Bible also then condemns intentional killing, intentional murders. And Kevin DeYoung, um, he wrote a book, um, The Ten Commandments. I highly recommend the book if you like to read more on this topic. But he, he mentions three specific sins that the Sixth Commandment forbids. Number one, suicide. Suicide. So when God says you shall not murder, it includes yourself. You shall not kill yourself. Taking your own life is a sin. But it is not the unforgivable sin. So I do not think and I do not believe that if someone has committed suicide that they automatically go to hell. I don't, that's not what I believe. But it is still a sin. And that should cause you to be at least slow to do it. Would you really want to end your life with sin? So suicide is forbidden by the sixth command. We, we, we may not do that. Number two, abortion. Abortion. Life starts at conception. Determination of a pregnancy is murder. It is sad today that abortion is even an option for, for, if, for dis, disabled babies. If the parents have a prospect of having a disabled baby, the option of abortion becomes, becomes um, reasonable in our culture. I love, I uh, watched a YouTube video by David Wood. David Wood is an apologetic, apologetic I don't know, okay, sorry, I forgot the word. <laughs> um, but his wife, he and his, he and his wife had the prospect of having a disabled baby, and they actually did, I think they had one or at least two disabled babies. But when, when she was pregnant with one, the geneticist said to her that they could do tests on the baby to see whether the baby would be disabled or not, and that's just to keep their options open, which is code for abortion. Because there was actually a 50% chance for their baby to be born disabled. And I love what David's wife said to that geneticist. She said, I quote, My baby might have a 50% chance to have my tubular myopathy, but the baby has a 100% chance of being loved. A 100% chance being loved. That is, that is what we as Christians should believe, should feel, should value. Life comes from God. No matter if it's disabled of, of life, if that person is disabled, if the, if the people are elderly. That's why it's so good to take care of the elderly, to take care of disabled people. Because life comes from God. People are made in the image of God. So abortion is forbidden by the sixth commandment. The last thing that this command forbids is euthanasia. Euthanasia, the, um, also known as assisted suicide. Assisted suicide. Again, Kevin DeYoung says, we are not talking about termination of treatment, but termination of life. Do you hear the difference there? We're not talking about termination of treatment. We're talking about the termination of life. To, to, to withhold treatment so that someone may die a natural death is not killing that, is not murdering that person. But to actively stop that person's life through assisted suicide is murdering. So that is so, so important. But Jesus, when we come to the New Testament, we see that 
Murder is something much more than something we do. It's also a matter of our hearts. Matthew 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, every one of you who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So not only does the sixth commandment forbid violent deeds, the sixth commandment also forbids violent emotions. Our hearts, that murderous anger, thoughts. Who of us are not guilty of this? But this is where the gospel is so beautiful. Because for our murderous heart, for our murderous deeds, Christ was murdered. He was murdered for us. Jesus was the innocent one, dying for the guilty, the just for the unjust, that he might reconcile us to God our Father. And even like Paul, right? Paul was the chief of sinners, and what did he do? He murdered Christians. And he says, Jesus had patience, and he had mercy with me. He will have mercy with you as well. So our church covenant reads, we agree to avoid whatever tends to destroy us or our neighbors, and to engage vigorously in all lawful endeavors to preserve our own lives and the lives of others. That's, by the way, why I think we should wear masks and sanitize, because we want to preserve other people's lives as well. Especially by walking together in brotherly love, caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, watching over each other, faithfully admonishing one another, promptly repenting when we have sinned against one another, and not abusing our Christian liberties to our own harm or to that of our brethren. So we should not just not murder, but we should actively love one another, preserve one another, and carry one another's burdens. So that's the sixth commandment. Let's now focus on the seventh commandment. Let's read verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Sure, like it, it gets uncomfortable, right? <laughs> the longer we go, like, okay, this is, this is hard. Kevin DeYoung, again, in his book, he wrote, In my 15 years of pastoral ministry, about 90% of the really difficult sin issues that come before the elders of the church have had to do with sex and marriage. 90% of all problems, the worst problem is about sex and marriage. And I've been a pastor for three years, and I agree. In my three years, this has been the most difficult, most crying moments of my life. And the reason for that is obvious, because... Sex and marriage are one of the greatest gifts of God. It's one of the most beautiful things that God has made. And so, of course, it will be the two things that will be the most twisted, the most that will bring us the most hurt and sorrow in our lives. Again, we are faced with the issue of marriage. What is a marriage? If you don't have a biblical definition of marriage, this commandment doesn't make sense. It assumes marriage. It assumes that there is a marriage. Marriage is God's idea. This is not something we came up with. God made marriage. He made from the start between a biological man and a biological woman to be one flesh for the rest of their lives until death do them part. Probably forever if they haven't sinned, right? <laughs> but from day one, when Adam and Eve sinned, that marriage relationship was, was broken. There was shame. There was blame shifting. Adam blaming God. Eve blaming the serpent. The roles of husbands and wives are now twisted and confusing and sinful. 
and our curse is directed at our roles as well. Man now works by the sweat of their brows. We plow the dust and then we return to the dust. So our, our work feels meaningless. We, our lives feel va like vanity, like Ecclesiastes talks about. And women will now labor in pain. So, so our sin has messed us up, right? Sin has broken our marriages. And as Jesus said, the only real reason for divorce is hardness of heart. He says, why did Moses allow divorce? Because of your hardness of heart. If there's a divorce, there was hardness of heart somewhere. But the beauty of marriage is that it can still be redeemed if we repent, if we trust God, if we build our marriages upon the Bible and, and His plan for our marriages. Then marriages can become sweet and not burdensome. So this command, to not commit adultery, includes all sexual sins which is not in the context of a marriage union. Do not commit adultery is condemning and, and refuting and all sexual sins that are not in the context of marriage. Again, Kevin Young, he made an interesting observation about 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 and 11. He says, Paul quickly runs through the second table of the law, and under the seventh commandment, he gives two Greek words about the seventh commandment. Listen carefully. He says, 1 Timothy 1, 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinner, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers. That's the fifth commandment. For murderers, sixth commandment. And for seventh commandment, he says, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. So he uses two Greek words to talk about the seventh commandment. And then he goes to enslavers, eighth commandment, stealing. Liars, ninth commandment. You see, so he's running through those commandments. So with the seventh commandment, he says, the first word he talks about is sexual immorality, which is the Greek word for porneia. The Greek word is porneia, where we get our English word from, pornography. And porneia, in the context of, 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 of Jesus and in that time, includes all sexual sins like fornication, sex before marriage, bestiality, pedophilia, homosexuality, and also prostitution. It, included, it was a one word that was including all of those phrases. And then the second word, Paul almost highlights one of them, and he says, Men who practice homosexuality. So the, again, that's how our translation has translated. But the Greek word is arsenikoites. Arsenikoites. I'm sorry if I've mispronounced that. Which literally means man and bed. That's literally what it means. Man and bed. And Paul is actually quoting Leviticus 20 verse 30. Where those two phrases come next to each other. And in that verse, Leviticus 20 verse 13, it says, A man shall not lay with the man as he lays with a woman. So it specifically condemns adult male-male um, relationships. Not man-boy relationship, but male-male and also vice versa, women-women relationships. So all homosexuality is condemned by the seventh commandment as well. But then Jesus takes it another step further. So again, Jesus takes it to the heart. Matthew 5, again, Matthew 5 says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, lustful intent meaning strong passion, strong desire, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, lust is not just the beginning of adultery, it is adultery. That's what Jesus says. You have committed adultery already with lustful, a lustful gaze, a lustful thought. 
So what our battle is not merely external. The battle is in us. The battle is in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our intentions, in our eyes. I just want to say it's not sinful to admire someone's beauty. <laughs> I don't think you break this commandment by just thinking, wow, that's an attractive person. But it's the gaze, it's the lingering, it's the, it's the unclothing with your eyes, right? That's why Jesus said, Matthew 5 verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You see, it's a matter of our hearts. Our hearts must be pure. And that's why this is such a difficult battle. For the Christian, it's way, 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 way more. Um, the, bat, the, the, the stakes are higher than just not sleeping with another woman. It's our hearts. Have you ever done this? Have you ever broken the seventh commandment? Looked of lust, committed, por watched pornography. Then you've broken this commandment. But again, I want to remind you, Christ came for the impure. He came for the guilty, the defiled, the broken, the sinful. He didn't come for those who think they are righteous. He came for those who know that they are sinful. It's like Jesus came for a prostitute and then he makes her his wife. And he clothes her with white robes of his own righteousness. He pays for his sins in full. And that's so important for us to accept and believe. So our church covenant says, We agree to possess our bodies in holiness as vessels joined to Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit to avoid all uncleanness of thought, speech, or action and to bear witness against the uncleanness and sensuality of our age. So that's the seventh commandment. Let's read the eighth commandment, verse 15. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. So the put off element here is very easy. Don't take something that doesn't belong to you. I grew up with this, this phrase. Maybe you've heard it. Um, finders keepers. Right? So imagine a wallet falling. You're just waiting for the person to walk a little bit further. It's like, finders keepers. You take it and you walk. Right? That's stealing. Okay? That's, that's not true. It's not finders. There's, again, an Old Testament command where if, someone, if you found someone's ox wandering in the, in, the, in the street, you had to go take him back, the ox back, right? That's what we should do. But there's also other ways we steal that I don't think we think about. What about not working the hours you are paid to work? Stealing time. How many employees check in late and go home early? Right, that's stealing. You're stealing from your employer as well if you're not working. What about not paying your taxes or cheating on your taxes? The Bible is clear, Romans 13 verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. We need to pay our taxes as Christians. Selling products which are broken or worthless, things like that. Stealing people's words, which is called plagiarism, another form of stealing. What about online piracy? Stealing movies, music, or online software. And basically that's the definition of stealing, getting something for free that, that had to cost you money. That's the definition of stealing. And again, Paul, but Paul applies the Eighth Commandment in 1 Timothy 1 that says, he says, enslavers, referring to kidnapping, stealing human beings. It's an abomination to God. So that's the put off, right? Don't do that. Stop with that. If you're doing that, stop it. Okay? But now the put on, this is actually where the Bible becomes super practical. There's a positive side of this command. Listen to Ephesians 4, verse 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but what must he do instead? Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with someone in need, anyone in need. 
Imagine if someone comes into the service and gives their testimonies. I was a thief. I, I couldn't stop stealing. And then Jesus saved me. And guess what? I stopped stealing. And all of us would be, wow, it's amazing. Paul would say, wait, you're not done yet. That's only half the obedience. Do you have a job? <laughs> Are you pursuing a job? Are you giving your money away? You see, true obedience of this command is not just don't take things that doesn't belong to you, but give your things away to people who need it. So you need to work hard. You need to do honest work. Earn your money honestly. And I want to just give some counsel here about how do we give? Because I think giving is a topic that we might be confused about. But I think what helps me in my giving is to think of your giving in concentric circles. You know, if you drop a, a rock into a water, it makes those circles around. So that's the idea. That's how we should give. We should first give to the people closest to us and then expand um, further and further away. The first area of your giving, obviously, is your family. Your husband, your wife, your children, your extended family, your mother, your father. You give to them. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says, but if... Anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Because even unbelievers do this. So if you don't take care of your family, you are worse than an unbeliever. So you first take care of your family, then you take care of your church family, your local church. You then give to the church, and you help those who are poor in the church as well. Then you go, you give to other Christians, other churches, other missionaries outside of our church. You seek to promote the kingdom of God. And then the further circle would be your unbelieving neighbor. Um, Galatians 6 verse 10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So there's a priority for Christians, but we do give to unbelievers as well. So our church covenant says we agree to be diligent in our callings in order that we may provide for our own households, avoid theft of time, of money, or goods, give tithes and offerings to the church, provide for the needy, and support the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's what obedience to this commandment looks like. Let's read the ninth commandment, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So... Originally, the context here is a courtroom setting, right? So when you are claiming to be a witness and you give a false witness, changing the outcome of that court case because you have maybe a bias or you've been bribed or, or it will hurt you to tell the truth. So that's what the, the, the original context is. But no, what, what this commandment says is even if it, it's not what you want, don't accept a bribe, speak the truth, even if it hurts you, even if it will damage you. Speak the truth, because that simply reflects how God is like. Titus 1 verse 2, God never lies. God always speaks the truth. Colossians 3 verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, but now have put on the new self. So let me give you some few ways we lie. And I think here, we, I think we all, if I ask you how many times you've lied, you would say countless. But let me, I think there are also other ways we don't even know we're lying. Okay, well, the, the obvious way is blatant lies, right? Were you there? No. And you were there. Did you do that? No, I didn't do it. And you did it. Right? That's, that's condemned. What about I will pray for you? How many times have we lied by saying that phrase? Jesus said, let your yes be yes. Let your no 
be no, anything more than this is from the evil one. So your simple yes, I will do that, must carry the weight as if you are promising them that you will do it. You, sh- you shouldn't rely on your promises for people to believe you. I've actually experienced this in a very interesting way. Um, I remember Michael Rogers. He's the pastor of Heritage Baptist, Joburg. And he said, I'll call you tomorrow. Tomorrow came, he didn't call me. The day afterwards, and I mean, I, I felt like, okay, I forgot, that's all right. The day afterwards, he called me and says, please forgive me. Please forgive me, I lied to you. And I was just struck by that, that if, even if we make small commitments to people, we should really endeavor. If you say, hey, I'll see you tomorrow, or hey, I'll, I'll give you that thing, you should endeavor with all your energy to do it. Because the way you speak has an effect on how, what people think of you and how they view your God as well. What about white lies? Now here it's very sensitive, right? Here it's difficult because we also love people, but at, sometimes our love takes away our truth. Do I, like, do I look fat in this dress? <laughs> if you don't want the answer to that question, don't ask it. Okay? So ladies, please, can I just ask the ladies, don't put us in that, don't put us in that position, okay? But men, if, if, if the question is asked, you must say honestly what you think. You must. How, how's, how's this dinner? How's the food? Okay, you start with the good food. Like, yo, that is amazing, right? And you... I think here you can work a little bit more, you know. I just want to clarify, this does not mean we should be mean or rude, right? Some people, some people are so good at truth, they just offend everybody and are like, yeah, I'm just speaking the truth. If you can't handle it, get it. If you can't handle the heat, get out of the kitchen, right? But they're actually just rude. That is also a sinful way to speak truth. We don't just blurt out truth. Ephesians 4 verse 15 is clear. Speaking the truth in love. Some people are amazing at truth speaking, but they're horrible at love. Other people are amazing at love and never speak the truth. We should be neither of those two things. We should be both. We should speak the truth in love. Love that person and then speak the truth to them. Therefore, we also avoid flattering people, right? This is also an easy way we lie. Wow, that's an amazing tattoo. And then afterwards, yo, that tattoo is so ugly. Can't believe that person got that tattoo. So we just lied, but we're flattering them because we want to kind of make a good first impression, but we're not telling the truth. So don't make compliments that you don't mean. Give true compliments as well. So beloved, put off blatant lying. Stop that. But also another way we lie is with over-exaggeration. This is probably one of the most common ways, right? And this normally is expressed in fightings and arguments. You never do this. You always do this. Well, it's very rarely true that someone never does something and someone always does something else. So don't even use that phrase, never and always. You know a lie is coming, okay? What about telling a story over, but you're telling it in such a way that you look, you, you are always the hero. Have you noticed your stories? You are always the hero of your own story. And other people are always the problem. Sometimes we just over-exaggerate what people say. Imagine, sometimes people come to you and they correct you with a gentle tone of voice. They don't raise their voice. They just say, hey, you should stop doing that. Or, hey, have you noticed? And then when you tell somebody else, this person like said this, and you, like, you, 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 you tell it in such a way as if this person became this monster 
But that's just the way you felt, right? Well, what about this? That's probably also a common thing. Imagine someone coming to me, hey, Rihanna, I love your beard, but you just need to trim it a little bit on the sides. Then it would look perfect. And I tell Deborah, yeah, that guy said I'm a bear. I look like a bear. I'm ugly. I'm, I'm a, I'm look like a Wookiee, you know? And you're like... <laughs> but that person didn't say that, but you, you are just saying words because that's the way you feel. So, beloved, this, I'm actually very serious, right? We shouldn't let our emotions make lying okay. We should represent people fairly. And another way we lie is cancellation, what Wayne Mack calls cancellation speech, meaning you say something positive to someone, but you cancel it out in the very next sentence. For example, what a wonderful supper for once. Right? So you, you actually give a compliment, but what is your true intent? Your true intent is just to get another jab in. Or, wow, you can be really productive when you're not that lazy all the time. Right? So the, the intent is not to build up, it's to tear down with those cancers. So we should be careful not just to say one thing, but we actually want to say what's coming. We should be careful of that as well. Don't cancel your words with your words. But again, beloved, that's the negative side. But then there's a positive side as well, okay? We must not just lie, but we must be great. Our words, we already alluded to it in Ephesians 4 verse 15, but also listen to Colossians 4 verse 6. I really love this verse. Colossians 4 verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious. Now hear these words. Seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. So that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Our words must be like the salt on a great steak. Right? Our words must be winsome. Our words must be gracious. Our words must be full of kindness and patience. And our words must be few. We must listen twice as much as we speak. Be slow to speak, be quick to listen. Another thing we must just avoid, beloved, is gossiping, right? Gossiping behind people's back. So even telling the truth behind people's back is wrong. If you have a problem with someone, go to them in person. Tell them in person as well. So our church covenant says we agree earnestly to promote truth among men, to avoid anything that would prejudice the truth or injure our neighbor's good name, to promote the unity of the Spirit by our words and prayers and to avoid all gossip as undermining such unity. We avoid that. Lastly, let's close with the 10th command. Let's read verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. What is beautiful about the Ten Commandments is that the way the commandments end is the way the commandments begin. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. The last commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or possessions because the Bible says coveting is idol worshipping. Listen to Ephesians 5 verse 5. Ephesians 5 verse 5 makes it clear. It says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous then he says, that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul calls the covetous person that always longs for something else, always longs for someone what someone else has, as worshipping other gods. A covetous person is an idolater. It's a way to say to God that God is not good with your life. 
Everybody else's life is always better, always greener on the other side. Like Israel of old, you look at the manna and you say, what is this worthless manna? Where's the water? You grumble against God because you are not content with your life. The life that God gave you, the gifts that God gave you, the possessions God gave you, the wife and husband that God gave you. So what's the secret then to contentment? So if coveting is to always want something else or always want something more, because you are worshipping idols, what's the true secret to being content with what you have? Well, then just obeying the first commandment, right? To have no other gods before you, to worship only God. If God is your God, you will be content with your life. That's a very diagnostic test as well for your heart. Are you content with your position in life, your possessions in life? And Paul himself wrote this. Listen to Paul, Philippians 4 verse 11. Philippians 4 verse 11 says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Okay, Paul, tell us, how? How can you be content? He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul can be content because Christ himself strengthens him. Christ himself is his treasure. Philippians 3, we've sang it in our, our worship as well. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing what worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Skubalon, Greek word, which means poop, right? It says, I count everything as poop compared to Christ, to Him. Because, Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ. My life is Christ. And to die is gain. If I die, if I lose my, my husband, my wife, my children, my possessions, my house, my car, my success, if I lose everything and I only have Christ on the other side, I make a profit, I gain, I have more left. That's what he's saying. He says, so the secret is to worship Christ and have Him as your treasure. Now think about this. If Christ is yours, you have everything. He is your Savior. He's our God. He's our shepherd. And if He's our shepherd, what shall we want? If He is our rock, if He is our provider, if He Himself is our inheritance, then what do we need? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can say with Psalm 73 that, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. If God is your God, your heart can rest. What else would you need if he is your shepherd? What else would you need if he is working all things together for your good? Even the, the poverty and the sufferings, he's working that together for your good. What else would you need if nothing can separate you from his love, whether it's persecution or death or hunger or nakedness? What else do you need if nothing can separate you from his love in Christ? So it just comes back to this question. Who is your God? Who are you worshipping? What are you worshipping? That's why our church covenant says we agree to be fully content 
with our own condition in life to delight in the advancement of our neighbor. Not envying them, rejoicing when we see someone doing better than we do, having more than we have, rejoicing in that. To avoid envying him or coveting anything that is his and to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Beloved, here is God's law. Here is his commandments. Here is how we must live. And the first purpose of the law is to show you that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The first purpose of the law is to be a mirror. Look at the law. Look how bad you actually are. Look at your heart. Look at your rebel heart. Look at your murderous heart. Look at your, your adulterous heart. Look at your stealing heart. Look at your lying heart. Look at your coveting heart. And confess with God that you are not good enough. You need a savior. We need someone else to make us good. To be our righteousness. We can't do this on our own. That's the first purpose of the law is to humble you. To show you that you are a sinner. But what some people do is they see themselves as sinful in the law like a mirror. And then they take the mirror and try to clean themselves with the mirror. But what happens then is you just get more filthy. If you try to keep the law to go to heaven, you just become more sinful. No, the law leads us to Christ. The law shows us Jesus is the only way. He was the only man who kept the law perfectly. He alone went to the cross to take the wrath of God upon his shoulders for our law breaking. So that whoever believes in him should never perish, but have eternal life. The first thing we must do, beloved, is turn to Christ, run to Christ, trust in Christ. He and He alone is, what, is who can save us. Abandon your attempts. Abandon your trust in your good works, your righteousness. It's not good. Leave it behind and rest fully and rely fully on Christ alone. Cast yourself like the thief on the cross, Cast yourself, your full soul, upon the dying Savior. Think about me, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. That's what he can say to you as well. If you come, if you trust, if you believe. And then we keep the law. <laughs> After we are cleansed, we are forgiven. We have imputed righteousness, Jesus' righteousness in our life. Now we follow the Ten Commandments and we seek to obey them, not because we want to go to Him, but because we already have it. And we love God and we love our neighbor. That's the practical outflow of our saving relationship with God. So let's do that. Let's love God. Let's love our neighbor. And let's not just do that individually, but let us do that as a church as well. Amen. Let's pray together. Let's just use a few moments of silent prayer. Let's just pray and respond to God in our hearts um, and turn to Jesus and pray and ask Him for His mercy and His grace. Let's use this time now.
Lord, when we look at the law and we look at our lives, the only thing we can do is to despair. Lord, for as we look at our lives, we see that we are rebels, we are murderers, we are adulterers, we are thieves, we are liars, we are covetous people, we have other gods before you. Lord, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand before you? Who could survive your judgment, your wrath, your anger for all our law-breaking? But with you, there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. Lord, we pray, we ask you for a clean heart. We ask you for pure hands. Father, we cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot do this on our own. We can't do the heart operation that we need. Only Jesus can. His blood, nothing but the blood of Christ, can wash us clean again. Lord, thank you for your beautiful promise. The promise we've just read in our service as well. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that we would walk worthy of your calling, that we would truly strive to love you and to love our neighbors and to become more like Christ, the one we love the most. So please, Lord, come and do this for us by your mercy and by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.